Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And just ahead on the program, we're going to be getting more insight into the mood the Fed is in. I'm John Tucker in New York. I'm Doug Krisner. We'll have rate decisions in the coming week from the Bank of Korea and the Reserve Bank of Australia. I'm Caroline Hetger here in London, where we're looking at the controversial Qatar Footballing World Cup. I'm Amy Morris in Washington. After the midterms, what comes next for the GOP and Donald Trump? That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Hi, everybody. I'm John Tucker. Let's start today's program with the Fed and the coming Fed Minutes headed our way. Joining me to talk about it, Bloomberg Global Economics and Policy Editor, Michael McKee. You know, we had what uh, Bloomberg is calling a deafening chorus of Fed hawks speaking this week, including St. Louis Fed President uh, Jim Bullard. Here's how he put it. Even under these generous assumptions, the policy rate still isn't at a zone that might be considered sufficiently restrictive. To get to this sufficiently restrictive level of policy, uh, we'll need to increase the policy rate further. Bullard presenting those charts at an event in Kentucky hosted by the Greater Louisville, Inc. Uh, he showed a restrictive zone of somewhere between 5 and 7%. So um, how draconian is between five and seven percent. <laughs> that encompasses the range from about as expected <laughs> to draconian. Okay. Uh, we had uh, Bullard go on to clarify that he's thinking five to five and a quarter percent for a terminal rate. That's not outside the realm. I just of I, I got to back up for people who don't follow this minute by minute like you do. The, the terminal rate is where the Fed's going to stop. And stop what the rate is going to be when the Fed stops raising rates. And he thinks five to five and a quarter percent. Uh, where is it right now? Right now it's at four four percent is the top of the range. Yeah. Uh, it trades a little bit below that. So if you get to five and a quarter percent, you'd probably be trading around five uh, to five point one percent, something like that. So uh, that's not outside the range of what other Fed officials have been saying. There's sort of a feeling that they got to get to four and three quarters to in the neighborhood of five, maybe something a little bit over that. Seven percent, that would indicate that inflation is much stickier than they anticipated and the economy is uh, in need of much more restraint than they had anticipated. Uh, what he did was use the Taylor rule, which you've heard of, which is a way of plugging in economic indicators and it 
spits out what uh, the optimal policy would be. Uh, it, it's really uh, designed to look backward at what had happened, but some people use it looking forward, and he wanted to make the case that the Fed is not done. No matter what happens, the Fed is not done right now raising well, you, interest rates. You also got to con consider the source. Jim Bullard is a bit of a hawk, right? Well, he's been a hawk. Uh, he's been all over the map in his career, uh, but lately been a hawk. The reason people pay attention to him is he's usually the first one to raise an idea that may then get into the mainstream. He was the first one to suggest that the Fed might do a 75 basis point move this year, and now they've done four in a row. So when he says 5 to 7%, obviously Wall Street sits up and takes notice. When we get clues that maybe inflation, the rate of inflation has peaked, that uh, the rate of inflation might be slowing, it's off to the races for uh, the equity markets that we've seen with the, the latest CPI report. Um, is the That's the CPI. That's inflation, uh, the prices that we pay at the market. But in the uh, employment report, that still doesn't seem to have been impacted by any Fed policy. Am I right in saying that? And do they have to uh, torpedo employment? <laughs> that's a, a big argument out there. Uh, historically, that's what happens. The Fed raises interest rates, and so companies in particular, but uh, people as well with their auto loans and, and home loans, stop borrowing money, and that means less economic activity. And then companies look at who they have on staff, and they don't need as many people if they're not going to be doing as much work. And so you see the unemployment rate go up. Now, in this case, uh, this is a very unusual situation because everybody lost their jobs at once, and a lot of people didn't come back when the jobs reopened. So you're seeing, during, uh, during the pandemic. During the pandemic. So you're seeing a slowdown now in the pace of job growth each month. But is that because companies don't need to hire as many people because they finally got people back? Or is it because they see bad business conditions ahead? We don't know. We're looking at the unemployment rate, and it went up from 35 to 3.7%, but it did that in August as well and went back to 35 in September. So the Fed, Fed officials are saying, you know, as far as employment is concerned, we don't know yet what the actual trend is. They think unemployment has to go up to around 4.5% or so, but it's not been moving very quickly in that direction. So they're going to want to see more. Uh, and I'm sure that was a discussion at the meeting that will show up in the minutes. Can I utter the the, the, the most dangerous words in investing? This time things are different? <laughs> uh, this time things are different. I mean, it was the first thing they taught you in economics graduate school is this time things are never different, except that they are because we haven't had a pandemic, a uh, global pandemic like this since 1918, and we didn't have good economic data at that point. So uh, yeah, this time things are different in the Fed and Wall Street, and everybody's trying to model what's going to happen. They're doing their best, but there's not a lot of historical data to put into those models, so they can't be sure. All right, Mike, as always, we appreciate it. Michael McKee, and just a hint on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Big decisions looming for the Bank of Korea and New Zealand's Central Bank as well. I'm John Tucker. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Up later in the program, the World Cup in Qatar is upon us, and the event and politics around it getting a lot of attention. 
But first, central bankers in Asia staring down inflation. And for more, let's go to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Doug Krisner. John, as you know, inflation has been at historic levels in many countries across the globe, and the respective central banks have been fighting to bring those prices down. Well, in the week ahead, we have monetary policy decisions from the Bank of Korea and the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. Now, it's going to be particularly delicate for the BOK since South Korea has been dealing with a credit crunch. In the last week on Daybreak Asia, we asked Rajiv DeMello, Global Macro Portfolio Manager at Gamma Asset Management, for his take. The Bank of Korea is somewhat more dovish than um, central banks in, uh, in Latin America or, or the U.S. for many domestic reasons as well. But inflation has um, not only gone up for domestic reasons, but the one's been weak until most recently. And that's also not been very good for, for Korea. So the Bank of Korea will hike rates. We expect a 25 basis points uh, hike. That's Rajiv DeMello of Gamma Asset Management. So let's take a preview of the BOK meeting with Bloomberg's Global Economics and Policy Editor Kathleen Hayes. So this is the last rate decision that the BOK will have for 2022. A rate hike, I think, Kathleen, seems to be a foregone conclusion. If there's a debate right now in markets, 25 or 50 basis points, is that fair? It's completely fair because they did a 50 basis point rate hike when they had signaled 25 basis points at the last meeting and they got a bit of pushback after that. That's one of the reasons why I think some economists has been saying uh, that uh, even with inflation still high, but with a property market under pressure and a credit market that has been gone through some major gyrations in the last month or so, uh, it would be prudent to go back to the 25 basis point hike for now. That seems to be the consensus. It'll be quite a surprise if they do the 50 and uh, the yuan wanting to keep it stable might be a reason for them to do that because going into the previous meeting that's one of the reasons why they're expected to step up a little bit more to put a floor under the currency there seems to be this view in markets that the risk of corporate default is greater now and in particular concentrated in some segments of the business community within south korea leverage we know is a problem in household activity, but I didn't realize that it was so critical on the corporate side. For step one, setting the whole thing up, was the global bond route. Yeah, That's what pressured bond markets around the world. But then the funniest thing happened uh, on September 28th, uh, the developer of the Lego Land Korea theme park in Gangwang province missed its payments on its commercial paper repackaging loans. They are these project financing asset bait commercial papers, what they're called. But the bottom line is um, it, it, it's the biggest shareholders is uh, Gangwon. There was there's a kind of a government side to this. There was the previous mayor, the I would say the local government that was backing the developer they wanted to bring in this it's, if it, it is finished it's the second largest uh, Legoland park in the world and then with a new president taking over change of political power the next administration didn't want to back the developer anymore anyway it's a long story but that default just just shot through the corporate bond market yields on five-year corporate debt rising more than 150 basis points at one point uh, liquidity drying up and then there was an insurance company that didn't call its perpetual bonds. Bottom line, they were going to just pull back their refinancing of the bonds. And that was another bang to the corporate bond market. And that's created a big loss of confidence. It has Koreans worried about investors continuing to want to uh, invest in their bond market. And it's not 
entirely settled yet, but it also doesn't, in a, in a way, it harkens uh, to what we saw in the UK, where suddenly mm -hmm. a market that's been stable doesn't seem to be a problem. A lot of different things happen. Of course, it was the, the ill-timed and ill-designed uh, package, budget package that Liz Trust had for a while. Anyway, I digress a bit, but it, it's that kind of a thing for Korea. It seems st stable for now, but talking about the Bank of Korea, it's another big reason to say, hey, this is not time for a 50 basis point hike. So that's the corporate story. Then on the household side, we know that debt levels are pretty high and viewed as being maybe a little vulnerable, although I think Fitch ratings this week had a note said that that vulnerability can be managed rising interest rates and the way that that correlates to mortgage rates in a different way than it does in the states puts even greater pressure on on households in korea well about 80 percent of uh, korean households have adjustable rate debt so i believe uh it was one of the bok officials who said so a 50 basis point hike by the bank of korea is more like a 75 basis point hike by someone like the federal reserve remember most most americans or at least many americans have 30-year fixed rate mortgages so it's a big difference mm. when your central bank starts raising rates so be okay this week we also have the rbnz the reserve bank of new zealand right now i think that the consensus is that we're going to see a much weaker economy in New Zealand in 2023. Uh, it's really been struggling as many economies across the world have been to come back to some degree of normalcy after the pandemic. What do we know about the outlook for rate policy in New Zealand? Well, we know that their inflation rate's very high. It's continued to rise. It's up to 7.2% year over year. We know that Adrian Orr, uh, the governor of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, is not afraid to do aggressive, bold moves. Because remember, at the very beginning of the uh, downturn globally when the pandemic started, they suddenly went from 1% on their key rate 75 basis points down to 0 0.25. Who else was, you know, they were out front mm -hmm. and they were out front on the way back up. But I think now their, their uh, rate hikes, their, their aggressive tightening have been very effective in hitting the housing market. There were high prices, the market was overheated, but, and that hasn't stopped them yet. And there are other parallels too when you look at the tightness of the labor market. In the face of higher interest rates in the States, the labor market is pretty, pretty tight. Same is true in Australia. Even though the RBA has been tightening the labor market, we just had in the last week a shockingly strong employment number, double what the market was forecasting. And in New Zealand, labor market conditions are very tight, although I think the expectation now is that things will begin to loosen in the new year. Yes, but is is loosening enough? That's the thing. I think it's all relative, isn't it? And I, that's another reason why... Um, the, some of these, uh, particularly, I think, developed nation central banks are in this position where they can maybe slow down the pace of rate hikes, the size of rate hikes, uh, for various reasons. Be okay, their corporate uh, bond market still being in turmoil, still being tight. Um, the RBNZ maybe figuring that the what they the impact that they had on housing is is pretty what I want to say significant. Uh, but at the same time, the economies are holding up and their inflation rates are still higher, well above target. So the door is open to more hikes, but this point just like the fed the question isn't do they stop yet or anything like that it's just how big and the how magnitude. fast they go bloomberg's global economics and policy editor kathleen hayes i'm doug krisner you can join us for bloomberg daybreak asia beginning at 7 a.m in hong kong 6 p.m on wall street john doug thanks a lot and just to have the world cup in cutter i'm john tucker this is bloomberg
Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm John Tucker in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Big weekend for Qatar and for soccer fans with the World Cup. For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker. John, the Qatar World Cup is becoming one of the most controversial sporting events in history. Qatar, a country of three million people, won the vote to host the tournament back in 2010, despite its scorching climate and lack of footballing history. It's faced enormous criticism for its lack of freedoms, mistreatment of migrant workers, a country where homosexuality is illegal. But Qatar has defended itself against the sports washing accusations and the event could deliver record revenue for organisers FIFA and a diplomatic dividend. Now, FIFA's president, Gian Infantino says that the tournament in Qatar can be used as a force for good. Football and the World Cup are offering you and the world a unique platform of unity and peace all over the world. So let's take this opportunity to do everything we can to start putting an end to all conflicts. Okay, an end to all conflicts. So Infantino also did urge a ceasefire in Ukraine for the month-long World Cup. Well, for more, joining me now is Bloomberg Simone Foxman in Doha and here in the London studio, David Hellier. Welcome to both of you to discuss, I mean, what is a huge event in the footballing, in the global sporting calendar. David, can I ask you first, I mean, Qatar wanted a global platform through football. It really has one. What do you think this World Cup is going to be like? Well, uh, I mean, Obviously, the, the jury is out on, on this. Um, I mean, the, the build-up has been unremittingly, uh, you know, negative in terms of the criticisms of uh, uh, of, of the country uh, and its its sort of uh, treatment of migrant workers and uh, LGBT rights, um, all that kind of thing. Um, but on the um, from on the on, on the other side, um, you know. A number of stadiums have been built that look amazing. Uh, there would have been a, a you know, a great rebuild in the infrastructure of uh, Qatar. So from that point of view, it leaves a, a, a useful legacy mm. for the country. Um, but we really, I, I don't think we've really seen anything quite like this before. The clash of cultures, um, and um, uh, it really, you know, it, it really will depend on how. Uh, you know how how they mix, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so we wait and see. I guess. <laughs> yeah, and, and I know, of course, because a you are a huge football fan. Also, you write a great deal about the business of sports, and you're going to be uh, in Qatar to actually see some of uh, the footballing action. And Simone in Doha. I mean, this is this is it, isn't it? It's Western footballing countries kind of outraged that Qatar, for all the reasons that I mentioned, is actually hosting the event. What do the Qataris uh, see? How do they see it? You know, I think there's a, a degree of surprise that 
some of the criticism has gone on for so long. Mind you, it's not just about human rights, whether migrant rights or uh, the rights of uh, minorities, including LGBT people, but it's also, remember, think back to um, the early 2010s when there were all these swirling controversies around corruption. You know, Qatar is uh, thought to have won this bid to host the World Cup, um, maybe for unsavory reasons, as well as uh, Russia 2018. And I think particularly in the UK, you know, fans haven't really forgotten about that. Here on the ground, though, you know, the attitude has changed a little bit. I think there was some openness to labor reforms. Certainly the exposés that came out painted a very dire picture of what life is like for the lowest income workers. Mm. Um, but this campaign has been unrelenting. And recently, Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Athani, the ruling emir, talked about this as an unprecedented campaign against the country for reasons that may not be so, um, I guess, unjust, may not be so justified. And so we've sort of seen that kind of evolve to a bit more resistance. Okay, so football, but also much beyond football as we look ahead to the World Cup 2022. Thank you so much for being with me. Bloomberg Simone Foxman in Doha and David Hellier in London. Of course, they'll be at some of the matches uh, in Qatar. And I'm Carolyn Hepke here in London. You can catch me every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, that's beginning at 6am in London, 1am on Wall Street. John. Caroline, thanks a lot. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the battle lines already being drawn for the 2024 presidential race. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. A lot of uncertainty among Republicans and some level of uncertainty among Democrats as well as we start to set up now for the 2024 presidential race. And for more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Amy Morris. Amy. All right. Thank you, John. One of the biggest question marks hanging over the GOP right now after the midterms, what comes next for the GOP and Donald Trump? We want to take a deeper look at this with Bloomberg editor Megan Crane. Megan, thank you for taking the time with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, Donald Trump announced his own plans to run for president again from his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. Now, he seemed a bit muted during that announcement compared to the last time he ran. Megan, what's your thoughts? Um, you know, a lot of people have said that the announcement sounded more uh, muted is the right word. Yeah, sort of a less energetic. Mm -hmm. um, he did say that he's hoping to recapture the underdog spirit of 2016, um, a smaller, scrappier uh, campaign apparatus than he had in 2020. Um, you know, it's harder to make an announcement in front of a room full of your friends at Mar-a-Lago than it is in front of a crowd of supporters you know, sort of out in the country somewhere. But, uh, you know, it sort of remains to be seen whether he's able to recapture that energy. Now, here's what fellow Republican New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu had to say uh, the same time at the night that uh, the former president was announcing. The political atmosphere today 
will be 180 degrees different six months from now, yeah. 180 degrees six months after that, and then we'll get to June of 24 and we'll, we'll see where we are then. It's going to go up and down and in and out. We are so far away from all of it. So that's why I say it's going to be kind of an up and down wild ride. Enjoy the show because we are so far. Whatever, whatever announcements may or may not be happening tonight, <laughs> uh, frankly, nobody's going to care. That was New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu speaking there at the Republican Governor's Conference. And I guess what I want to know about that, Megan, is are we starting to see a shift or a rift? Are we starting to see a split within the Republican Party or is the party going back to the more conservative, traditional type uh, Republican Party that we, we may have grown up with in the 70s and 80s? What are we seeing? Sure. Well, that's a really good question. And I think a lot of people in Washington would love to know the answer. Um, You know, Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley said that the midterms had been a funeral for the Republican Party as we've seen it in the recent, you know, in recent years. So a funeral for the Trump Republican Party? Yeah, I suppose, you know, yeah, that would be what he meant to say. Sure. But the traditional Republicans weren't supporting supportive of Trump in 2015 and 2016 either. So, uh, you know, it, that riff isn't really new. Uh-huh. Um, and we've seen this show before. Trump is a force to be reckoned with. And I don't know that they can just turn the page on him so quickly. But it's not just the politicals, right? It's also those wealthy conservatives who are starting to turn their backs on him. You actually have been reporting on that on the Bloomberg Terminal. Um, Ken Griffin, founder and CEO at the hedge fund Citadel, actually put it this way. He lost in 2020. We lost Georgia because of his behavior in the Senate race in 2020. That's a second loss. And then this year, the Republicans lost the Senate because the Trump-backed candidates in the Senate races were rejected by American voters. That's a three-time loser. And I'd like to think that the Republican Party is ready to move on from somebody who's been, for this party, a three-time loser. And it's important to note here that Griffin is also very heavily invested in Florida. He's openly supporting a possible run for president by Governor DeSantis in Florida. But also calling the former president a loser, I would think, really stings. That is a word that for Donald Trump is a naughty word. Yeah, I mean, it's like the ultimate insult to Isn't Trump, it? right? Um, a three-time loser. Uh, he's not alone in saying that he won't support Trump. Going forward, uh, Stephen Schwartzman came out with a statement saying he would not be supporting Trump's run in 2024 and that he was really looking to a new generation. He did not specifically speak to DeSantis, but that's sort of, you know, somewhat coded that we talk about DeSantis when we talk about a new generation of Republicans. Um, importantly, though, those big or I'm sorry, uh, deep pocketed Republicans didn't give to Trump before either. And, you know, they didn't support him early on in his candidacy, and he ran without that kind of money in 2016. So, uh, you know, it's impossible to know whether he's able to move on without him. Some people think that these big donors moving away from Trump is actually good for him because he it reinvigorates his image as sort of working for the working class and the working man, as opposed to sort of being, you know, tied to big business and big money and rich people. You know, I, I that's an excellent point because it, it occurs to me he probably doesn't need the money. He, oh, has, he doesn't need the money. He has quite the war chest. He does. He has, you know, lots of money on hand that he can spend. It It gets more complicated how he can spend it now that he's announced. But, right. you know, he does have access to funds. I think the, um, the signal from people like Griffith and um, Schwartzman is basically – 
it opens a lane for other people. If you're Ron DeSantis, you're Glenn Youngkin, it sort of lets it be known that there's money out there for them. It's not as important that they're withholding from Trump, that they're making it available to other people. Right. That that exactly what I was going to ask you about next, if it opens up that lane and if it also opens a lane for other big ticket donors, big right. heavy donors to sort of be empowered or be emboldened to say, oh, you know what, we're going to throw our money behind this other candidate as well. For sure. I mean, these aren't necessarily people who you would say follow the leader so much, but it is a little bit of that, right? You know, when the tide turns, people people don't like throwing good money after bad. So, you know, they'll be sort of looking to see who people are supporting, where the money's going, and where that's often where they'll put their dollars. Did it surprise you when the president's daughter, Ivanka Trump, stood up and said, I'm, I'm not going to be a part of this one. En- enjoy, good luck, but I'm out. <laughs> right. Um, did it surprise me is not really. She's been signaling for a while that she was pretty done with uh, politics. It maybe wasn't as fun as she had expected. Not fun and it's not glamorous. You know, um, it's not that glamorous. Uh, Policy work is actually um, harder than sometimes people maybe expect. I think that she and her husband took a lot of criticism for taking jobs in the White House um, and that maybe also, you know, they've been there and done that. Maybe, you know, it's time for their family to move on. So then what's the next step for Donald Trump? You know, I think that Trump doesn't want his legacy to be ending on a loss, right? And so uh, he has one way to change that, which is to try again. And he'll do that if he can. You know, it sort of remains to be seen whether he can marshal the energy that he needs personally and also among his supporters. But, you know, he is the leading candidate for the Republican nomination by a lot. Like, people are talking about Ron DeSantis, but those polls show DeSantis you know, sort of like early, who would you prefer to be the Republican nominee polls, showed DeSantis behind by like 50 percentage points. It's not, you know, it's not like running neck and neck. It was like, you know, Trump, a whole bunch of space, and then a few other people. So DeSantis rises. He won by a lot. You know, he's very popular right now. But also, that's a very dangerous place to be. Politics is a long, is a kind of dirty, long business. And the Washington Post had a story this week about how the air of inevitability is sort of a death sentence in politics. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not certainly saying Ron DeSantis is not doing well and riding a wave right now, but two years out, we've often talked about a lot of front runners who are not, who never became president. Sure, um, a lot can happen. Jeb Bush, you know, was inevitable. John Edwards was, you know, had Hillary an air Clinton. of inevitability. So, yeah. you know, we can go way back to when, uh, you know, that's sort of a dangerous position to be in. It puts a lot of targets on your back as well. And we are talking with Bloomberg editor Megan Crane about what comes next for the Republican Party and for Donald Trump. But let's also talk about Democrats, too. Uh, the midterms, a huge win for President Biden in a way. The results are mixed, though, but not as bad as they thought. So a moral victory, I'm not sure how they would describe it. Certainly the Senate numbers are evidence of that. Um, there are some questions about you know, Biden's age. There are other questions that persist. But is there a way that the Democrats can take advantage of this? Yeah, so you know, Joe Biden turns 80 on Sunday. Um, he is already the oldest president, and you know he would be 82 if he were reelected in 2024. Um, that definitely, there's a lot of talk about generational change in the Democratic Party right now. Um, the House is led by three people in their 80s right now. Is is that just the Democrats? I mean, the 
on both sides of the political aisle, you see a lot of people who are in their 70s and 80s. Yes, that's right. That's, you know, Donald Trump is 76. You know, there's definitely um, there seems to be a tide turning. Generational change is sort of what you keep hearing people talk about. There are lots of um, Democrats, you know, who are decades younger than the president, who are looking looking to the future, looking to be the future of the party. Um, whether, but you know, right now Biden is the president, which is of course an incredibly powerful place to be. It's a, you know, um, it's a, he would be a natural front runner. Bloomberg editor Megan Crane, thank you very much for taking the time with us. And that is what is going on in the nation's capital. For more of our political news coverage, tune into Balance of Power with David Weston weekdays at noon Wall Street time and sound on with Joe Matthew weekdays at 5 p.m. Wall Street time here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Amy Morris and this is Bloomberg. John. Amy Morris reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. Thanks a lot, Amy. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.